Hello and welcome to Borderlines. I'm Stephen Murens. In today's episode, we interview Sergio Marchi, Canada's Minister of Citizenship and Immigration from 1993 to 1995 under the Jean Chrétien Liberal government. Minister Marchi is the third interview of a previous immigration minister that we have done on Borderlines. If you want to hear the other two, you should check out episode 43, an interview with John McCallum, the first immigration minister under the Justin Trudeau government from 2015 to 2017, and episode 44, an interview with Chris Alexander, the last immigration minister under the Harper government. Uh, Minister Alexander served from 2013 to 2015. Uh, Sergio Marchi, Diano Kanachov, and I discuss a lot of topics with Minister Marchi, including what led to a decrease in immigration levels for much of the 1990s, how the Reform Party of Canada influenced Canadian immigration sentiment and policy, the introduction of the right of permanent residence fee, Minister Marchi's approach to assisting members of Parliament with uh, immigration issues that their constituents had, and what uh, Minister Marchi considers to be his biggest regret as immigration minister, which was not replacing the citizenship oath to the Queen with an oath to Canada. Although, as he uh, talks about, he really tried to abolish the oath to the Queen. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at stevenmurens at larley.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot com. Or my co-host, Diana Okanachov at D-E-A-N-N-A at M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W dot C-A. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Today we are joined by Sergio Marchi who was Canada's Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, the first minister to hold that title. Uh, and he was minister from June 30, 1994 to January 24, 1996. Uh, Mr. Marchi first entered politics at the municipal level in Toronto and was elected to the House of Commons in 1984 as a member of the Liberal Party. And he was a member of Parliament until 1999, when he was appointed Canada's ambassador to the World Trade Organization. Um, Mr. Marchi, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. One question I actually have had as I've reached out to former ministers is, do you keep the minister title your whole life or do you go back to Mr.? Uh, it's usually, hey, you. Um, but uh, knowing Canada, we lose our titles. Of course, in the United States, once a president, always a president. Once a congressman, always a congressman. In Canada, what we are able uh, to do is for those who served in cabinet, we get the, the usage of the title honorable. Yeah. But uh, People don't refer to me anymore as minister. Sometimes people will refer to me as ambassador, but uh, it's back to private citizen, basically. Ah, okay. But you do keep the honorable title. Yeah, the honorable title uh, follows you. Okay. No, that's good. Uh, that's good to know. So um, it's going to be an interesting and uh, I think very enlightening conversation with our previous interviews that we've done. Deanna and I were both 
practicing law at the time and we had a very in-depth knowledge um, of the topic and what was going on in Canada's immigration system at the time. I was nine years old, 10 years old when you were uh, the immigration minister. So it's been a real, it's been really interesting actually going in reading um, about immigration policy at the time, politics at the time. The book I've been reading uh, for those who are interested is Strangers at Our Gates, Canadian Immigration and Immigration Policy from 1540 to 2015 by Valerie Knowles. Um, and so I was wondering if maybe uh, you could just set the stage a little bit as to what the atmosphere in Canadian immigration law and the public perception was uh, at the early 90s. Because I think you were Canada's first immigration minister under the Chrétien liberal government after about a decade of progressive conservative party rule under Brian Mulroney and Kim Campbell for a brief period. Correct. I think, uh, generally speaking, I think the general broadest context is that Canadians are fairly um, uh, generous uh, and decent uh, in terms of annual targets. We haven't had much controversies. Obviously, we've had differences of opinion. But, you know, for the most part, our general elections are free of the issue of immigration by comparison to our friends to the south, where the rhetoric is loud and polarized and very divisive. So we've found a way to basically have an unwritten consensus between the main parties that agree that immigration is good for Canada, uh, good for our economy, and good for continuing to build uh, the nation. In 1993, if there's one unique uh, feature to the context was the election in that year of the Reform Party led by Preston Manning, if you mm -hmm. recall. And the Reform Party at the time was basically a regional rump uh, based in the West. And I guess it was our Trump light, if I can use that uh, title. It was nowhere near the rhetoric of Donald Trump, but from a Canadian perspective, it was to the right. And the Reform Party initially pushed some very, very raw buttons on the national stage, including on immigration. And I was up and down on question period uh, for many, many sessions because the Reform Party thought that they can grow their appeal through basically a very harsh immigration um, um, approach. Um, so that lasted for probably a couple of years. And then they shifted because if they wanted to keep being a regional rump, then they were free to push those raw buttons. But they found that the response was not really positive for them, that their rhetoric was not in the center of the national discourse, and it was <laughs> offside generally with how people came at immigration. So over time, the Reform Party amended their ways, uh, became much more accepting. And for example, Jason Kenney, when he was Harper's Minister of Citizenship and Migration, 
uh, he went to, to more ethnic communities than I certainly did, which, which I think was good for the national fabric. So initially there was a real sharpness to the Reform Party's approach to immigration. Uh, I would say that that was probably the most unique feature of the context back 27 years ago. Yeah. One other thing that I found uh, very interesting from going back and look at some, looking at some of the materials um, from that that period of time, was just the nature of the conversation about how the mix of immigrants coming into Canada was to be considered. Looking at the the kind of mix between the economic immigrants and the family, uh, the family reunification component of um of the immigration system and i think that the way that that discourse happened during that period of time i feel like it was the beginning of the dialogue that has really informed policy making right up until today but i feel like the first time that 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 kind of conversation began was really during the period of time that, that you were in office. That's how it looks to me, at least looking back at that period of time. And I don't know if that's how it felt, that this was really the start of this kind of making that conversation about managing the mix of immigration really part of the, the public discourse. I think that was central to having a license from the Canadian public uh, to do immigration in a balanced way. And I found then, as I think ministers do today, there is always a creative tension between an economic class and a family class with different supporting bases. So, for example, many of the uh, ethnocultural communities will push ministers and governments very aggressively on doing more family class because obviously it's a benefit to their respective communities. And then what you have is other actors, let's say uh, in the private sector, where they will push more economic migrants because they're requiring certain labor that is not being met by uh, traditional uh, constituencies in Canada. So the minister was always pushed and pulled between those two classes, even though immigration has many more classes. But those are the two central thrusts. And I think uh, every minister has to find an accommodation. During my time as well, I remember that I increased the, the levels for the first couple of years. Then I think my successors restricted it. And there was also the debate back then because we were elected on on a mantra of jobs, 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 which meant that the economy was down. And so there was a school of thought when the economy is down, don't open the immigration doors. Uh, the contrast is no uh, immigrants will seek jobs that uh, Canadians usually don't or create uh, new jobs or new businesses. So there, there was some criticism from the Reform Party that as I was uh, uh, hiring, as I was uh, moving the targets up, they were arguing that the economy would not be able to accommodate it. And that's, I think, the classic debate around targets and uh, economic performance. What um, dictates the levels number? Because that was something that I read, which was that the targets were would go up and they were mostly, I think, met or almost met when you were minister and then declined. So when I look at Stats Canada, 
uh, immigration peaks in 1993 at about 256,000, kind of hovers at around 226,000 during your time as minister, and then after it drops to about 174,000. But from what I understood, there was always an intention to get to 1% of immigration. Yeah. So what actually dictates whether that 1% is achieved or not? Yeah, I think uh, when we go back to that election in 1993, in our uh, platform, the Red Book, we had put a 1% target over over a, an amount of time. So it wasn't to simply take office and move it right up to 1% right away, but to incrementalize it towards 1%. So that was the, the vision piece, if I can say that. So when I took office, I was mindful of that commitment. And so I started moving uh, the numbers up. But targets are just that, they're targets. It's not a scientific quota or a scientific number that one quote unquote guarantees. You move towards a target. And then of course your target is impacted not only by, by um, um, uh, people abroad in terms of applying, but also the amount of personnel that we have for processing these. And sometimes if you move up the numbers too quickly without giving the numbers of people processing an increase, then you're going to be at a bit of a loss. So it's an unscientific target, and it's a plus or a minus, which I think is is beneficial because it doesn't mislead people as to a, a specific quota that you need therefore to answer if you don't reach it. A target is is just that. It's 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 a tool with which to plan for without knowing if you're going to be exact. And the current liberal government now is again back to that one percent. Uh, they're they're targeting that and Mendencino, the minister just a few weeks ago, obviously had what he called his three-year ambitious immigration plan where the numbers are going up. Yeah, I think the numbers, I mean, a large part of that is the numbers are so down this year because of COVID that just even admitting all the people who've been approved but can't actually land should help hit the target. And so in terms of the atmosphere at the time, um, one of the things that I read in this book was that uh, the Mulroney government was considering moving immigration under public safety and yeah. that when the liberals took office they instead um, moved immigration which was then employment and immigration into its own citizenship and immigration which under the act anyway is still what it is today the Trudeau government changed it to immigration refugees and citizenship but legally it's still citizenship and immigration because the actual act hasn't been amended what prompted the decision i guess a to not move it under public safety and b to make it its own ministry well first of all i remember uh debating and campaigning against putting immigration in public safety primarily because the connotation was entirely negative uh, the connotation was that somehow uh, migrants were a risk to public safety and public security. 
And that wasn't the case. Not to say that immigrants uh, uh, are perfect. They're not. Uh, neither are Canadians. We have uh, crime, unfortunately, uh, committed by both uh, native-born as well as people who've adopted this country. But I thought that, that the Mulroney decision was wrong-headed. We committed ourselves, if we were elected, not to put it in public security. We kept that commitment, and we thought that while employment and immigration is a natural, there's many other factors that you can complement with immigration. And we thought that immigration and citizenship, first of all, was a much more and secondly, it really communicated what we wanted to do. In other words, we wanted to invite people into the country to help us to build a country. But the flip side of that coin, probably a more important side, which probably doesn't get enough time, is the whole integration. We wanted to make sure that we would be able to quickly and successfully integrate new uh, migrants, new Canadians, new residents, and encourage them to vertically uh, become mobile. And we would encourage uh, them to take out their citizenship. We didn't want them to be renters in Canada. We wanted them to be landlords. And so we thought that the combination of immigration coming in and citizenship, full integration, was the right message and the right brand for this new department. And I think that uh, successive governments have essentially kept that and added to it, which, uh, which, which I'm happy with. Yeah. It is very much a different climate, though, in the sense that um, there wasn't the same proliferation of the temporary foreign worker program at the time where there was um, those who um, were... Um, you know, there wasn't the promise that they were going to be here indefinitely. Um, and so there wasn't that same articulation at that time of those who were coming with the intention of there being permanent retention and those who didn't have that promise right from the get-go uh, in the same way. So I imagine that that would have led to quite a different environment. Correct. Uh, the other issue in that environment, now that I recall, because it's been 27 years, was there was also, again, notwithstanding that the general population is very progressive by comparison to so many other countries, where in some countries immigration is used to build new anti-immigration parties. It's almost a one-trick pony. Uh, and we've seen how that poisons, I think, the whole cultural uh, discourse. But one of the great tensions in Canada is always the right balance between uh, immigrants and refugees. And sometimes Canadians, when I would meet them in uh, public events across our country, would basically say, look, Minister, uh, we are okay with, with immigration numbers, but we should be much more careful about how many refugees would be allowed in. And when you press them, the reasoning that they would add to that is that they thought that refugees would be more of a drain mm. on, on the public purse. And there was also a misconception because when I would uh, get that uh, from people in an auditorium, I would say, how many, what's the percentage do you think of the whole target, let's say of 250,000 people, what percentage do you think of those people are refugees. 
And it was fascinating because refugees would tend to get more media ink. And so it was much more high profile. And so people would respond with answers like, oh, it probably ranges in the 70, 75, 80% range. And they were absolutely flabbergasted when I would say, do you know that it's only 10%? In other words, 90% of our annual targets have nothing to do with refugees. And our 10%, which I think is a manageable number, which is our contribution towards helping the settlement of refugees globally, is something that Canada should and can do. And when you put it that way, you, you would instantly see, not in everybody, but in many people, a real relief where people were nodding their heads and saying, oh, okay, I, I didn't think it was that low. Uh, so it's interesting how public perceptions on refugees and whether they're a drain or not, and the number we take, became a function of how much media attention refugeeism at the time got. Was the tension, like, under the Harper government, they distinguished between resettled refugees and asylum claimants, those who were in Canada and seeking asylum. Was there, when you encountered that reluctance or hesitation on refugees, was there that same distinction, or was it all types of refugees? You know, we were at the beginning of that debate because what created the tension is the changing reality of the world. In other words, many years ago, we, the country, would choose our refugees. So we would go into refugee camps around the world and choose refugees ourselves. Many times, most of the refugees that were chosen were chosen with an eye to the labor market. So most of the refugees were men. So inadvertently, we would be allowing women and young children to live years and years in refugee camps while their husbands were chosen. But nonetheless, it was a very orderly process where governments had numbers, went to refugee camps, chose them, brought them in. There was also community sponsorship as well. But then the world changed because all of a sudden, refugees were not just going to refugee camps. They weren't just willing to sit in refugee camps. They took any mode of transport uh, to come, in this case, in Canada. So we had to create an internal refugee determination system because the old world didn't have that because we didn't need it. Now, because of transportation and communication, we had to react. And so that led many Canadians to believe that we were being swarmed by people who weren't waiting to be chosen, but were coming instead on their own volition. And then we needed a refugee determination system to figure out who was a legitimate refugee and who wasn't. So I think the change in the movement of refugees changed the mindset of Canadians to a good degree. And so like, you made, what were some of the changes that you made to the refugee determination process? Because I think uh, one of your significant changes was reforming the Immigration Refugee Board. Yeah, there were a number of changes that I'm hard pressed to, to figure out their specificities 27 years later. But one of the changes that we made at the time that I thought uh, was important and I was proud of was that there were charges that 
we were making life and death situation, life and death decisions to a certain degree. And the charges were that the uh, immigration refugee board members were patronage appointments, that they therefore might not have been all credible. And so we were putting, the alleged allegation was, we were putting politics ahead of the very uh, uh, expertise that was required to make these decisions at the IRB. And so I uh, managed to convince uh, the prime minister, who was hesitant at first, because he wanted the liberty of choosing. So I created a mechanism whereby people were able to make recommendations of, uh, of IRB potential candidates, and we committed to choose from that stream. So we were trying to take as much as possible the politics and the patronage out of this uh, particular institution. And I think that uh, built greater credibility and greater confidence in the system. Yeah. One of the questions that we've been asking everyone is, um, what was your approach to intervening on specific cases? Like if an MP came with a constituent who wanted help, um, when would you intervene and when not? That's a, that's a very tough, tough judgment call because as you know, uh, Canada uh, uh, has and gives full discretion under the law to the Minister of Immigration to intercede regardless of what the determination was of the department. So under humanitarian and compassionate grounds, every failed claimant is able the minister, and most do because they've got nothing to lose. In fact, Australia uh, eliminated discretion because ministers felt too much pressure and under uh, under uh, uh, great um, uh, representational demands by all sorts of people, not just members of parliament. And when you're a minister of immigration, you could be at an airport, you could be at a school function, you could be sitting in caucus and the next uh, seat is a rotation where MPs bring me their cases one after another. Once I was on a Hungarian airline in Hungary and I was invited to join the pilots in the, uh, uh, in the deck to see the landing, which I agreed, only to be asked by the Hungarian pilot if I can help her sister immigrate to Canada. Mm-hmm. So I said, my goodness, this, this never leaves you. And as long as you have discretion under the law, the minister will be continued, continuing, uh, will be continued to be under, under uh, pressure to allow this person or that person. And there are thousands of cases, so the minister cannot micromanage that. So what I uh, instructed our department to do is they would do, obviously, the ministerial discretion was delegated to my deputy minister, but I really wanted to know the handful of truly hardship uh, cases which kind of broke your heart. And then I would uh, place a judgment call and I would take either the risk of overturning the decision or affirming. So there's no science to how different ministers use their discretionary power. I didn't want to micromanage it because if I did, 
that's the only thing I'd be able to do in uh, in my uh, 24 hours in a day. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, questions that um, applicants sometimes have is whether it matters if your MP is of the same political party as the minister. So I don't like if that was a factor when you were minister, when you noticed as MP in general or in your entire time in politics, whether you noticed different immigration ministers uh, becoming partisan with it, or is that just a myth that, or an unjustified fear that uh, some applicants have? this, This one, because of the discretion, each minister will have their own approach and their own style. But I think uh, it's fair to say that you probably could not uh, completely remove the politics and partisanship from it. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when I was Minister of Immigration, any member of parliament, regardless of their party background, were free to bring me some really moving cases. And uh, I overturned uh, a good number of cases uh, at the request of MPs who were not liberal. But at the same time, as a liberal minister uh, in a liberal caucus, uh, I probably would receive more requests from liberal MPs to use my discretion. And uh, so that was just a a fact of life. So when I would look back, I probably would have intervened more at the request of liberal MPs than non, simply because of the the color of the administration. I think it would be the same during the Harper time. They wouldn't close the door to the NDP or liberals. But I think more conservative MPs would feel the confidence of bringing it to a conservative minister. So Even I just they would have more access, I imagine. They would yeah. have more time being in the same room and more yeah. familiar contacts and all that sort of thing. Not only familiarity, but I think the expectations are different. Yeah. I think many liberal MPs, some of them were, were abusing this, uh, uh, this privilege. And I would tell them that. I said, listen, you can't bring me three cases every week mm. because then there's no rule because there's more exceptions. And I would say to them, look, bring me X amount, uh, X number in a year. But it is up to you, I said, to go through all of these different cases. Don't bring me every case you receive. Bring me the cases that you, after reviewing the cases, really, really feel that we need to go flat out and overturn that decision. So I tried to impose greater responsibility and accountability. I didn't accept any and every case from every MP. I wanted them to make a case for them when they approached me. And that's how I dealt with liberals more than the other MPs, because it was the liberal MPs that had this expectation just because Mark is a liberal, therefore. You think it's also, as you mentioned, that when you were in uh, minister, the reform was the reform party at least initially, adopted a much more anti-immigration position, and that played into their willingness to help on immigration files? Yeah, they they took a a much more aggressive position. So as I recall now in talking to you, I didn't get as many individual requests from them because of their, almost their party uh, uh, policy. But 
as as time went on very quietly while in the question period the reform party would be hammering me on whatever decisions i was making privately some of the reform party mps were coming to me and saying marky i need your help on this case so yeah it was a bit of uh, hypocrisy when you say party position versus individual but i just uh, you know didn't want to debate that i looked at the merits of the cases because the cases were human beings yeah no it's uh, like i've gone back and looked at some of the private members bills uh from the early 90s and it was they contained measures that didn't see implemented in the Harper government or that you see being pushed now, such as bonds for all people applying for visas, making it easier to remove refugees for different reasons. Um, that aspect seems to have, or that sentiment seems to have completely faded. Might not have if the People's Party of Canada had elected any MPs. I don't know if there'd be similar bills, but that uh, definitely was something that was striking reading about the private members' bills when you were in office. Um, in terms of removing people, there was another uh, uh, major um, uh, context to my time in office, um, and it came at the hands of a terrible tragedy where uh, a, a police officer was shot uh, and killed, and the perpetrator was someone who was an illegal migrant and had gone underground. And the only benefit that came from that was that I did an investigation on why this individual had gone missing. And what I found to my great concern was the following. Under the, Mo and I don't want to be partisan because I have no reason to be, but uh, under the Mulroney regime, their ministers of immigration because they were tilting a little more to the right, wanted to show high numbers for deportations. And so a lot of times they would go after the easy ones. So for example, uh, someone's grandmother comes from Poland to attend their wedding and overstays. Technically, they're against the, the law because they should have gone back home. So they've gone, quote unquote, underground. So it was very easy for the Mulroney ministers to take that grandmother, put her on a plane and deport her back to Poland. That's one. And so they'd augment their numbers. And so what they were doing is they were going for quantity rather than quality. So they were building up the numbers without going after the real tough apples. And I inversed it as a result of that tragedy. So I said, to my officials who were running the deportations, I said, listen, I want you to prioritize those tough apples. First and foremost, I don't care about the grandmother who's overstayed. She's not gonna ruin Canada. We'll get to her eventually. But your first mission is to get those tough, rotten apples above ground where we can deal with them. The second thing that I uh, corrected was that our deportation uh, officials were not working with local police and RCMP. So we weren't sharing intelligence and we weren't uh, connecting online with the, with the three different uh, actors. So as a result of that tragedy and finding out that, we linked our database with the police and the RCMP, which meant 
it was far more efficient to get at those tough apples who were underground and who were posing a danger. So the deportation um, under my time got reoriented. So it was it was quality, meaning the toughest people first and uh, the least uh, offensive people last. And, and that was a major, major deal. Yeah. So as you talk, it's interesting to hear as immigration minister, you saying you're deportation people, because now, of course, mm. CBSA is completely separated exactly. from immigration. Do you think uh, that that was that they should be separate or should it be brought back uh, under one umbrella? Yeah, I, I guess I don't have too much experience with the with the new system, so I'm biased. Um, I, I think once we uh, renewed the way we did deportations, I thought it was fairly effective. And so what you typically had when uh, our officials had to go to the apartment that they found out where there was a real tough apple, uh, they usually were accompanied by a police officer, RCMP, who were armed. Because the other debate at the time was if we're going to go after the tough cookies, Minister, we want our deportation officials armed because we can't go to a door and simply knock when behind the door there may be people with arms. And so as a result of us getting together with police and RCMP, we were able to answer that so that our officer went accompanied by an enforcement person with a weapon, which created obviously much more confidence. I don't know enough about the new system to contrast the two, but I know that when we made our corrections, uh, I felt a lot better than I did before. Yeah. What do you consider some of your other major uh, accomplishments to have been? I think, uh, you know, there there were a number of uh, of amendments uh, mentioned to the IRB. Uh, I enjoyed leading the Canadian delegation to the population conference uh, in Cairo. Uh, I was uh, uh, tasked with opening the new processing center in Vegreville that was approved by Mulroney and Don Mazinkowski's uh, old riding. And so there were a lot of bumps and bruises with uh, a new processing center out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I mentioned the deportations. Uh, we allowed refugee claimants uh, to work. They were denied by Mulroney, and I thought it it didn't make sense because it fueled people's uh, animosity that while they waited, we were paying. So I said, well, let the refugee claimants work. But probably when it comes to one of my, I think, greatest accomplishments was something that was a not known and b criticized uh, uh, by by NGOs uh, in different ways, and that was the landing fee that I charged at 975. And the context of that was our government wanted to tighten our belt financially, so we had something called the program review which meant that the Minister of Finance gave every minister a percentage of savings that he wanted from that minister's department. And there were no exceptions to the rule because the prime minister backed the finance minister to the hill. So Paul Martin asked me to save 15%. The good news was that I was permitted to figure out which programs to end 
and which ones to keep. It wasn't that you put everything into the same vice, good, bad, and indifferent. So you were able, or ministers were able to pick those programs that they were able to afford not to have, while at the same time protecting the ones they cared for. The problem with my department at the time is that there was only one discretionary pot of money, and that was the integration settlement. I had no other monies. The rest of the monies was to pay bureaucrats to turn on the lights in the morning and to work and then close the lights at night and go home. So unless we wanted to massively create unemployment in uh, uh, by firing immigration officials, the only way to get money from my budget was to take it from uh, the settlement and having the percent from settlement would have killed the settlement program. And I thought that one of our secret recipes, because I happen to believe then and now that while our policy of migration is not perfect, I don't think there's another country that does immigration in a better way, in a more objective way, where they have many roads that lead to Canada, where we have point system. It's not political. It's, it's, it's based on, on merit. And one of the secrets of the success is that we put as much effort in on the backside to integrate people than we do on the front side to bring them in. And I said to Paul, I'm not going to, to kill settlement. And he said, well, how are you going to get me the 15%? And I said, I won't. And he said, you can't go back to the drawing board. So when we went back to the drawing board with our officials, the only way we were able to come up with the money uh, and protect integration was to attach a fee. And so I went back to Paul and said, here's, here's the deal. He came back with a $1,500 fee. And I said, look, I've got three conditions and I won't budge. One, it has to be less than a thousand because I thought a thousand was psychological. So I said, it's got to be less than a thousand bucks. He said, okay, 975. <laughs> Secondly, refugees should be given loans. If they can't pay, give them loans like we do with our students and then they repay them. And he said, okay. And by the way, the success rate of refugees paying back their uh, loans was higher than the students. And the third thing is I said, when in the future our economy improves, we need to de decrease the amount of the landing fee. So I thought that the landing fee was a tool that enabled us to safeguard our settlement budgets and at the same time have the, the fee be progressive, notwithstanding what NGOs thought. They thought they didn't understand the behind the scenes. They thought I was racist by charging this 975. There was no racism. It was the best of, of, of bad options in how to provide my 15% share of, of savings. And then I also said at the very end of it, I asked myself because my family immigrated to Canada. I said to myself, knowing what I know about this country, would I pay 975 for the luxury of coming to Canada? And I said, yes. I, I thought Canada at the very end of the day, notwithstanding the other features, and how difficult for some people it is to get 975, but they get much more money. Uh, they raise much more money to go on an illegal boat with these uh, illegal people. I thought 975 was not an unrealistic sum for being in one of the best countries in the world. And that's how 
uh, I was able to protect what I thought was an indispensable part of our immigration story. Yeah, no, the fiscal pressures, I think, continue to uh, play out. Um, at the same time, this government is going to get rid of, the current government is going to get rid of citizenship processing fees, or at least they campaigned on that. And permanent residence fees, though, are increasing substantially across programs. And who knows what it'll be after COVID. Deanna, I think I may have accidentally cut. No, 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 not at all. I was just going to say that the landing fee did go down. Um, yes. I can't remember what year that was, Steve. Do you remember? Or, uh, Mr. It was before I uh, started practicing. Yeah, I think. I think oh, was it really? Okay. I think that started to go down during the Paul Martin administration and continued by Harper. Yeah. It went to 490 first. Yeah, and now it's then 500. Back up to 500 just like a few months ago. But um, yeah, it did equalize many years back. And now I think all processing fees are after initial spikes between now and 2022 are supposed to rise at the rate of inflation every two years. Right. Um, but even now with the processing fees, they have managed to like the recent spike in processing fees. They did not apply to caregivers, for example. Um, so those processing fees did not increase. Yeah. Um, I so have, they did try uh, mindful of, of the less economically sad, um, uh, advantaged uh, classes within the economic immigrant categories. Yeah. One other, thing I wanted to touch on before we run out of time was I saw that um, in kind of a less, sub, not substantive, but I was a more surprising little side uh, issue that you had raised was uh, replacing the oath of the queen with an oath to Canada. Yeah, uh, I'm really shocked that actually hasn't happened yet. I, uh, if I have one regret when I was Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, that was it. And I came very, very close. Uh, how close? Uh, let me tell you. And if we run over, it's, it's okay. Um, I, one of the, the best jobs as Minister of Citizenship and Immigration was to attend citizenship ceremonies. They're, they're very moving. You see the number of different people from different parts of the world putting up their hand and swearing the oath. And uh, one of the things I did is I said, why are we keeping this bottled up in a court? We should, we should push ceremonies outside of our courts into the centers of communities so that those communities and Canadians can see who our new citizens are and be moved as easily as I was. So we started a program to say, look, let's have them in churches, in, in auditoriums, in schools. Let's have people bake cookies and have a reception. And it was a huge, a huge win. The other thing that I liked uh, about what we did is we had backlogs for citizenship. So one of the recommendations I made is rather than increasing and paying more for citizenship judges, I proposed that we use the Order of Canada recipients and they would officiate. And mm. they were perfect because in front of these new citizens, what we were communicating is the, the ceremony is being presided by a Canadian who received the highest possible award that their country can give to them. 
for being good citizens and and what better role model than to communicate good citizenship than someone who got the Order of Canada. And the third thing I wanted to do, but I struck out, was to change the oath because when I was at these ceremonies, when the the new Canadians would say, and I swear allegiance to Queen Elizabeth II and her heirs and successors, what the heck did that mean to them? Not very much. And secondly, most people said hairs, not heirs. So there was no, no connectivity. And the Australians had meanwhile moved without losing its constitutional monarchy to a simple oath to country. And I said, well, we brought our constitution home. We've got our charter of rights. We've got our own anthem. We've got our own flag. They were all controversial in their time. Now they're a source of pride. I said to myself, I'm going to change. I think we should change the oath and swear allegiance simply and powerfully to Canada. I went to the prime minister. He agreed. I moved. I took it through cabinet. I had some of our best poets and authors holed up in a hotel in Vancouver for four or five days, coming up with all these beautiful versions of different oaths. We had gotten down to two oaths. I was about to go to my final cabinet committee. And if that was approved, it would have sailed through a full cabinet. When I got a call from the prime minister saying, I understand you're going to cabinet committee uh, next week. Uh, you're almost at the end of the phase. And I said, yes, it's looking good. And then he asked me this question that gave me the goosebumps. He said, do you think we should move on this now? And I said, uh, what do you mean, Prime Minister? He said, well, we're in the middle of the, the referendum in 1995. And he said, we're taking on Ma uh, the separatists, and now we're going to take on monarchists, because there's going to be a, a number of people who were opposed to doing away with the old oath. And I said, Prime Minister, first of all, this helps us in Quebec because Quebecers are the least uh, favoring uh, monarchy. Uh, yeah. that monarchy is dead as a doornail. And secondly, I said, across the, the nation, our public opinion survey shows that there are monarchists for sure, but people are loving the idea of a Canadian oath. And I said, Minister, this doesn't interfere with our referendum. To which he said, you're probably right, but what's the big deal if we wait until after the referendum? And in politics, sometimes when you wait, it's gone and you That's can it. never get it back. And then I got moved to environment and my successor never picked it up. Had I stayed at immigration and citizenship, I would have revived that. But I came one meeting away from changing my oath, our yeah. Canadian oath, and that was my one regret. Yeah, oh, that's so interesting. I agree. I agree. I find that it's always a jarring. It feels like an idiosyncrasy for me and a lost opportunity. Starting to do a lot more of those, even you know, citizenship ceremonies in museums and other yeah. um, great locations, um, and I find that they are wonderful ceremonies. Both of my brother-in-laws are uh, naturalized Canadians, and one of my brother-in-law said that at his ceremony there was something like 75% who were, it just by some fluke, because he was in a small community, who were uh, refugee claimants, and I think he was one of the only white people at his ceremony, and he found it such a moving ceremony yeah, when they got really to the... And, yeah. And that, 
I think it was good to put immigration with citizenship because mm -hmm. it really closed the loop. And the it more, really did. The more people that would go to these ceremonies, the less negative they were of immigrants. Because For sure. sometimes if you never see an immigrant, you say, oh, gosh, why are we bringing in that stranger? Then yes. when you see that immigrant in the flesh with the nice suits and the little kids uh, doing the little waving of their flag, yeah. you can't but help support and feel good about these people joining the Canadian family. But this takes me a little bit back to something that we said earlier on about, you know, the, the resettlement of refugees and almost to the family versus economic, um, the, the managing the mix component is that I think sometimes when looked at from a very abstract perspective, it seems like the family members coming in or the refugees coming in are not contributors, that it's like they're looked at as like who's going to take and who's going to give. But I think... Uh, and this is something we talked about when we were speaking to Mr. McCallum as well, is that sometimes, um, you know, it doesn't take very much, you know, just in terms of meeting those people or in terms of like looking what they do once they become citizens is that they sometimes end up being very much the fabric of this society and very much the workers of the society, not at all the drain on the society. So, um, so sometimes in this managing the mix conversation, it becomes very abstracted and, uh, so I think that that's why part of the theme of what these conversations are that Steve and I are having with these with with former ministers is bringing this very much to the forefront. Yeah, and 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 I try to, you know, tell the story in a modest way, in order to help Canadians across the line. So, for example, people who thought well, family class. Are, are less good than economic class, I would say, well, first of all, we've got many more economic migrants than family class today, because it's a different world. But I said, secondly, you know, my parents came to this country with, you know, very little to show for it. They were sponsored by my uncle who was already living in Lethbridge, Alberta. My father found a job instantly and worked six days a week, sometimes seven days for cash. And he built a, a, a life for his family. And I said, sure. if my father and mother can do that, why would we think that uh, another mother and father under a family class can't, number one? Number two, I also said, look, there are legitimate refugees and then there are uh, not legitimate. And I would have arguments with the NGOs who wanted me to take everyone. And I would say, look, you don't understand how public life works. If I was to take every single refugee in, whether they were legitimate or not, under the definition of refugees, we wouldn't have a rule. If we don't have a rule, Canadians would feel very uncomfortable because we like rules and we like order. If Canadians are uncomfortable, they're going to impose restrictions on me because either they'll uh, go against what I'm arguing or, or they'll vote for a reform party. And I would say to the NGOs, if I was to do what you want me to do, in the long term, you would see that the refugee movement would be under under undermined. The other thing I would say to the public is, think of who a legitimate refugee is. In, in the 60s and 70s, for example, in Latin America, a lot of the refugees from those dictatorships were school teachers. 
Why was that? Because it was the school teachers who were teaching the peasants about reality. And the governments then didn't want the peasants to understand reality. So they went after teachers. They would murder priests. So in other words, a, a lot of those regimes would move against people who, in their eyes, were inconvenient to the truth. And yet these were teachers or priests or other professions who we paid no monies in getting them educated to their profession. So in bringing in a refugee, not only are we providing them a legitimate shelter, but we're also bringing in people who know what to do uh, with, with their hands and with their minds. And so a lot of good refugees were also good economic migrants by the virtue of what their profession was, right? So um, you have to break things down and, and have people say, okay, now uh, I get it. So you have to strip you have to strip a lot of the, uh, the, the, the formal words and definitions and you had to strip it down and have an honest eye-to-eye -eye chat about the reality between migrants and refugees. Yeah. Um, or honorable or Miss, Mr. March, I want to be respectful of your, uh, your time knowing that I think you had a, uh, another call that you had yeah. to be on. Yeah. This has been super interesting. Um, and I've definitely learned a lot. Uh, and yeah, I just want to thank you again for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. And it's uh, a bit of a walk through memory lane, 27 yeah. years, <laughs> which I thoroughly enjoyed uh, as a son of an immigrant being minister of immigration. That doesn't say anything about me, but it says something about how great our country is for that kind of opportunity. So it was a pleasure having this chat and uh, I, I, I wish you both uh, lots of good health given the circumstances. Yeah, that, uh, yes, to you as well. Thank yeah. you. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye okay. for now. Bye-bye.